I'm going to do something kind of different today. I don't know if you've ever heard anything like this, but I'm going to do an exposition of a chapter of Scripture. And it's something that it's kind of new to me, uh, very new since I haven't preached in a long, long time. But I'm, I'm hoping that I can get out of it. I can give some encouragement to you all about the text and about uh, the terms that are used there. And I need to link it together with a sermon that I preached about six months ago. I don't know if you were here for that or not. Probably not, but if you were, you might remember I named it the golden chain. And the golden chain is a theological term that's found, uh, that's used to describe Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. And in order for this sermon to make sense, I think I need to link it back to that one a little bit. And I want to share some encouragements that came out of that back then. So that uh, when the heaviness of this one comes on, it won't feel quite as heavy, I hope. (laughs) So anyway, in Romans 8, and you don't have to turn there. You would rather you turn to Romans 9, because that's where we're going to be today. But in Romans 8... If you can remember, we use this as our our text verse. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those, these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So we're talking about something that God has put into place with all that. uh, Because he's talking in past tense. You'll notice that there's some prefixes there. But you also notice the suffixes of ed. And uh, those we know that mean something that has happened. Called, you know, justified. Those kind of things all make a difference in the way that the text is understood. That's the vast passage of Scripture that's called the golden chain. And that's what our salvation, as many uh, theologians have said, kind of falls in order of that. It's a link, one link right after another, just like a chain. Well, our sermon today, as you can see, is the hands that hold the golden chain. Before we get into chapter 9, though, I want to express the encouragements that are in the last two verses. If you were for there, here for that, you'll remember how we brought that full circle. So it says in verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now he's just, he's given this whole spiel about our salvation, how it is secure in Christ Jesus because God had foreordained it to be. Now let's go ahead and move to chapter 9, the hands that hold the golden chain. And I want us to look at the first five verses because it seems odd to me. Paul gives this great encouragement here, and then he goes into this lament about Israel. But it all comes full circle, and you'll see. I'm telling the truth in Christ, in verse 1. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, 
my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So, that brings to mind a question, you know. The question is, why didn't they believe? I mean, it wasn't that long after, just maybe 30, 40 years, that Paul wrote this letter. And many of the people that were eyewitnesses to the events of Christ's life, to the miracles that he performed. Remember, he, he healed the lame. He made the blind to see. He opened the ears of the deaf. He gave the mute the ability to speak. He raised the dead. And he cured lepers of their incurable disease. He cast out demons. But yet they accused him of doing so by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. What blinded these people's eyes to the truth about Christ? When you see something like that, and many of them were miracles performed on people that had been that way all their life. What was it that blinded their eyes to the truth about Jesus Christ? Why do some people believe and others do not in our day and age. That's a mystery, isn't it? It's a bit of a mystery. Since the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, why isn't it that that power doesn't affect everybody the same way? You could have a whole group here and one person believes and the next person won't believe but it's the same word it's the same gospel it's the same sacrifice from christ it's everything that's needed for salvation but it's rejected we can go as easy as saying well the devil blinded their eyes but that's kind of a scapegoat i mean the truth of the matter is is we're all responsible for ourselves we're all responsible for our own sins we can't use that as an excuse why in the world would someone not believe what Jesus done when they were eyewitnesses to it. Verse 6 through 9 helps us kind of understand that. It, it helps us to see how the gospel is effectual for who it's designed for. Here's what Paul says about the previous verses, verses 1 through 5 that we just read about his lament about Israel. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they were not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word that came, the word of promise. At this time I will come. And Sarah shall have a son. Now that may not make a lot of sense to you uh, as it's written. But what he's saying there is that the gospel was designed to be effectual for those that God purposes it to be effectual to. So, in other words, God has been designed from the foundations of the earth. Those that would receive the truth of the gospel. And those are those whom Christ came and searched out. Those are you and me that believe. 
and all those that will come after us that will believe until the day of the Lord comes to pass. It affects those whom it is given to. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah shall have a son. Now, what did these people do to become the elect? As the term is used. Elect is a, is a Greek word. Uh, it comes from eklektos. And it means to choose. Well, in this case, it means God doing the choosing, doesn't it? And because God does the choosing then we can rest assured that he has a purpose and a reason for it. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they, they didn't do anything special. In fact, Abraham was a pagan. He was just a regular guy living outside of the grace of God because no one knew anything about God in his day. And God came to him. God came to him and spoke to him and made that promise to him that's part of the promise that holds us today. I will make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky, is what he said. He said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. In other words, he was already speaking. God was already speaking Abraham's time before there was ever a Moses, before there was ever a law or a covenant of law, before any of those things. God was making the promise that Abraham's descendants, those that believed, because Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him on righteousness, right? So he believed because I ain't watched somebody speaking out to you out of the night air. You got to wonder what's going on there, huh? So Abraham believed. Now it moves on because the promise had to have a lineage. It had to work its way down to that day when Christ would be born. And we understand that those boring lineages that we read in the Bible all have a purpose. They're there for a reason. They're there to show us how it came to pass that Christ was born of a woman and of the Holy Spirit. We know that to be true as well. People claim that their choosing of Abraham was for a national purpose, to create the modern state of Israel, so to speak, and to create an a ethnic person, people, that uh, would be peculiar to the world we live in. Well, yes and no. Yes, that is the case with Israel, and they are a peculiar people and there's people all over the world hate them uh, vehemently but they are the lineage they are the people that our messiah came from so it's yes but it's also no because that was not the purpose of god he wasn't putting israel into place because they were anything special more than just a, per, a group of people that he chose he told them in the old testament it says you were the least of the tribes of the earth but I chose you and I decided to love you. So he said, sovereignly love them and establish them. And uh, to move forward with, a, with his purpose of redemption for his elect. Now, let's move down to verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born... And had not done anything good or bad. So that God's purpose. There it is. God's purpose according to his choice. Would stand not because of works. But because of him who calls. That sounds like some verses in Ephesians too doesn't it. By grace you are saved through faith. And that not of your own is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. Sounds an awful lot like that. I want to read it again. God's purpose according to his choice. 
would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, and that being God, of course. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. A lot of folks try to explain that verse away by saying, well, it just means that God loved Esau less. No, no, he had sovereignly chosen to leave Esau by the wayside and put his focus, his attention on Jacob. And we know how the story went. Jacob went on and went through everything he did. And, you know, he wasn't such a nice guy. He's kind of a deceiver. You know, he, uh, he lied and he robbed his brother of his inheritance and everything else. But it was Jacob all the time. So that tells us right there that it's neither the good or the bad that's in our lives that makes that decision. It's God who is sovereign, makes the decision to pour his grace and his mercy upon people that he is uh, got in designs and purpose to save. It establishes the doctrine of divine election. And that's not a very popular doctrine with a lot of people. The concept that somehow, some way, we don't have anything to do with our salvation. Nobody really likes to hear that. We all like to hear that we made a choice for Jesus and we did this and we did that. Well, what this tells us is that we can't make that choice unless that choice is revealed to us in our heart of hearts and in our minds that God is indeed sovereign. For me, it was the knowledge of my own sin. Because I knew about God and I knew about Jesus way before I ever got converted. And the conversion came when the conviction came about my sin. And when that conviction came, then I understood that it was either, it, well, I understood that it was hell, not heaven whore. It was hell, period. And that was not a comfortable feeling that I dealt with. And so I searched the scriptures and I did everything I thought I could. It wasn't until I finally just surrendered and said, Lord Jesus, I mean, I can't do anything about this. I can't save myself. I can't do nothing. The only one can do it is you. I said those words and the burden was lifted. And I knew at that point I was saved. I was redeemed by God. Now, that wasn't something that wasn't already planned. It just was unknown to me. You see? God had already had that worked out long before that day ever come, come to pass. All I did was just respond like I was supposed to. And that, that to me is a great encouragement of the power of God in salvation for each one of us. There is no doubt about your salvation. Because God is he who holds your salvation in his hands. Divine election. It's the mystery of ears that hear and eyes to see. How many times do you hear Jesus say that? You remember him, he'd give a parable, right? And he'd say to, at the end of that parable, he that has ears to hear, let him hear, wouldn't he? And, and the disciples came to him and said, how, how come you always tell him stories and, and all this stuff? And he said, well, to you, it's given to known the mysteries of heaven, of the kingdom. But to them, it's in parables so that hearing, they don't hear. And seeing, they don't see. That sounds like a very familiar passage from the book of Isaiah in chapter 6. I've heard many, many preachers try to use one verse out of that to make it about going on mission or something like that. And it's when the Lord asks Isaiah, says, who will go for us? Whom shall we send? And they always, here am I, send me. Well, then they find out, he finds out what the message is going to be. 
And the Lord says, okay, you go to this people and you tell them, seeing, you're not going to see. And hearing, you are not going to hear. And you're not going to understand. Because if you hear, then you might change your mind. And, and if you see, he goes on about this and says, I'll have to change your heart and I'll save you. Now, why in the world would the Lord want to save everybody? That brings to mind that question. Well, that one I can't answer and neither can you. I don't know why the Lord does things the way he does. All I know is that I'm one of the recipients of it and I pray by uh, God's grace that you all are too. And I think if you love Jesus, I think that's a pretty strong indicator that you are. So it's the mystery of ears that hear, eyes to see. And throughout Scripture, God's selection of individuals has been contrary to the world's ideal of inherited rights. If you'll notice, God does everything that he does in contradiction to the way the world thinks. You know, the world, you hear people say, well, we're all God's children, you know, and there's many ways to God and all this and all that, and people go on and on about that. But that ain't the truth. It is only the people that are of the promise. And that promise is made manifest in their hearts. They can bring it to, to the knowledge and remembrance by how they feel about Jesus. You see, if you love Christ, then that is a very good indicator that you are one of his born again. Let's look at verses 14 through 18 now. What shall we say then? Is there no injustice with God, is there? I said that wrong, but it's because it's worded different than another version I read. And <laughs> you have to forgive that. May it never be. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You remember out in the wilderness in Exodus, as the people were led out by Moses out of Egypt, they traveled in the wilderness, and they began to complain and gripe and whine and carry on and such. And uh, the Lord's anger was kindled against them. You remember he, he opened up the earth, and 40,000 uh, fell that day, and and. Moses seen this going on, and he tried to intercede for them. said, no, Lord, please, don't, don't destroy your people. Destroy me and said, uh, I would rather that you destroy me and save them. And that's when the Lord told him, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy on. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion on. So that brings us to this. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. You see, judges have a right to show clemency, don't they? They can show clemency to whoever they want. Let's say you had two people guilty of the same crime, okay? Whatever the crime may be. And they come before the judge standing there side by side and the judge looks at one, and he said, you're exonerated, you're free to go. But to the other one, he says, you're going to jail. Does that mean God's unjust? Does it appear that he's unjust? We, see, we may see it that way, but it's God that is the perfect judge. Or you see, in this, you have one person that gets mercy... This person gets justice, 
and nobody gets injustice. It's all up to God. So he's right in this, and he's right in this, but it's all up to him, isn't it? We could often wish that things weren't that way, and we see that in our world today. You know, I, I remember it was either President Biden or o Obama or somebody released a terrorist that had been in prison for a long time, and we're, I, I seen that happen, and I'm going, what in the wide world of sports is wrong with that guy, you know? Why would you leave, let someone loose out of prison that hates this country and likes nothing more than to destroy it and uh, the people therein? I don't know. I don't know why they would do that, but he had the right to do it because it happened, didn't it? Then you hear of uh, other folks that spend 30, 40 years in prison and finally get exonerated by some evidence that comes up and you discover they were innocent the whole time. Them folks don't get that 30, 40 years back. That don't seem very just, does it? But Christ went to the cross, the just for the unjust, didn't he? He went to the cross innocent and sinless. And he took all the sin that we've ever committed, would commit, all of them, to the cross with him. He took them upon himself and he became the curse from God on our behalf. And he gave to us his righteousness imputed. And that blood, that cup that we, we take of right there represents the shed blood for the remission of sin. And the bread that we take represents the wrath of God that is upon our heads, every one of us, children of wrath until Christ redeems us. Isn't it amazing that God saves us from himself for himself? That's really what that means. In God's court, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has done evil in his sight. Everyone has done wickedness. Everyone is full of blame, full of guilt, full of shame. But Christ took that upon himself. However, we know that justice demands that sin be punished. The punishment is death. For all those that don't receive Christ, they receive that kind of justice, that kind of uh, punishment. God, out of his mercy, has mercy on whom he will, as he wills. But the cool thing is, is he's decided before the foundation of the earth. He decided that far and long ago who was going to be saved, he decided way back then how it was going to come about. He decided Jesus was right there alongside of him, that he would be the sacrifice, and the Holy Spirit would apply the, the knowledge, the wisdom, the sanctification that would change us, and this according to the will of God. I find that quite marvelous to me anyway. Look at verses 19 through 24 now. 19 through 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, 
although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make known, make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Now think about, you've heard people use the term cheap grace and things like that. Consider the idea and the concept of, of what what's involved, how holy God is. You know, he, was, he took and gave grace to us. But what is grace if you haven't got something to compare it to? You know, if you compare it to the wrath of God, we haven't seen the wrath of God. We see what happens in the earth today, but we haven't seen the fullness of the wrath of God yet. That's coming upon this planet, but we haven't seen it. We will see it one day. We won't have to endure it because we'll be with the Lord. But that wrath will be poured out, and we'll see just how much grace really means to us at that time. That is a, a promise from the Lord himself. So it's one thing a people argument will bring up with the ideal of this old verse and chapters and stuff is that that doesn't seem like it's very fair, does it? The well, that's not fair. Well, I need to really point out something I think is very important in the whole ideal and the concept of... of uh, salvation and stuff none of us deserve it all of us deserve justice and wrath god grants mercy to some not another now it comes to the point where you got to wonder if man's will is equal to god's will because you hear that one too well god's a gentleman and he won't interrupt god were a gentleman and didn't interrupt first and foremost none of us would be saved because we none of us would come to him none of us not a one of us but that's not the case. God does invade our hearts because he says so even in Ezekiel 36, where I like to call that the gospel of the Old Testament, just because it says very, two very simple words that have so much power in them when God is beginning to talk about the change that he's going to bring about in his people, he tells Ezekiel, he tells him, I will. I will take away the hardened heart, and I will put within them a heart of flesh. I will forgive their sins, and I will remember them no more. I will, the Lord says, do these things in order that we can understand that is salvation is of the Lord. So if man's will is equal with God's will, doesn't that make man equal with God? If you can tell God no, then you have exalted yourself, right? See, what it really boils down to is it's, it's a very, very low view of God and a very, very high view of man. And that's teetering on the edge of blasphemy. And it's an awful lot like a little incident in a garden with Adam and Eve because that's exactly what was going on there. They wanted to be like God and they sinned against God in doing so. Does God owe us an explanation for his doing what he wills with his creation? Another pointed question. I remember hearing about a, a uh, interview with Wyatt Earp uh, in his later days of his life after the whole tombstone thing and all that. He was an older guy and 
retired, I guess. I don't know. He's in L.A., I guess. And someone was interviewing him, and they began to talk about God and, and uh, you know, the hereafter and things like that. And Wyatt Earp was re- recorded as saying that, well, God's uh, got a lot of explaining to do about the life that I've led. Well, isn't that an arrogant statement? <laughs> you know, what does he mean by that statement? God, is he sovereignly made you do those things? No. The sinning part's always our ideal. We do it pretty effectively on our own. We, we don't need any coercion from God for that. So God doesn't owe us an explanation for doing what he will. And I really like the, the whole potter story here. And if you go back to Jeremiah... You've seen Jeremiah visits the house of the potter, and he sees the guy. The Lord takes him there. He sees him molding, working the wheel, you know, and he's making a bowl or a, a vase or something like that. And pretty soon he gets a little blemish in it, so he just takes it and squishes it all back into a ball. Starts over. The Lord tells Jeremiah, that's what I can do with the whole house of Israel. He was reassuring that everything that happens and all that takes place is somehow sovereignly connected to what God does, what his will is. And though he is not the author of evil, we, we bring that up ourselves pretty easily. But he does take his hands off and let evil take place because he'll bring something good out of it. Joseph is the best story for that. So justice of God is unique in that he is the ultimate judge and no one can question it. Okay, let's go ahead and go on then. Verse 25 He says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not my beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. This was done to make the Jews jealous because the Gentiles is who's being spoken of here. They were never to be a part of, at least two of the Jews, of the of the kingdom of God. But God says now now they are. I, I, I promised Abraham to be father of many nations. And he brings it to pass, you know, in concept, uh, this promise uh, that we can observe and see. So that is a promise for you and I as Gentiles that we are his people. The salvation is by divine election Verses 27 through 29, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. So in other words, what he's saying is there's no way we would have ever, ever been redeemed except by the grace of God as he has applied it in abundance to hearts all over the world as he has seen fit. It's not of works, nor of human effort. Look at verses 30 and 33. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? 
because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, you've got to think about a little bit about how we Gentiles come to the knowledge of Christ. How is it that we decided that we would believe these scriptures? I don't know. But we know when Paul went out into those other countries, he did preach to those people. And they did believe. It even happened in Jerusalem. There were folks there that believed the first time they ever heard it. Well, that's because the Lord added to their number those that were being saved that day in Jerusalem. Now, that's a mystery. We, we, we can't explain it, but we can rejoice in it if we believe in Jesus and we, our love and our affections upon him and our trust is in him. There is no reason not to celebrate that. As Mike said last week in his sermon, you know, we have every reason in the world to worship him with everything that is in, within us because of this great gift that he has shed abroad upon us. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about that. Rest, that gave me so much rest when I came, wrapped my brain around the concept that God saved me just because he wanted to. That gave me so much comfort and so much reassurance that I could not lose what I could not gain on my own. It was already established for me. I pray that you'll find comfort in it as well and that uh, you'll be able to rest reassured, if not already, in that truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy, and I thank you for the opportunity to share this. And I know it wasn't a real exciting sermon, but to me it is exciting in a reassurance of what you have accomplished, Lord. And it certainly makes you praiseworthy, and you are holy, 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 and your justice will be met upon all, Lord, who dwell upon the earth of the flesh. But Lord, for those of us that you have called and chosen and established and made your own, we'll be rejoicing with you. And nothing for us to boast or brag about, but it is something that we should be thankful about. And I just pray that, Lord, as time goes on, our faith will be strengthened and our resolve to stand firmly in your word. Trusting you will, by uh, all means, Lord, be affected in us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.